Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub Brought Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Lorna Mitchell. Based in Leeds, Lorna is a developer advocate for IBM Cloud Data Services and former independent web development consultant who worked with clients on improving their development practices. She's a writer who has authored or co-authored conventionally published books, and she's also a popular conference speaker talking about both technical and business topics. You can learn more about Lorna on her website and blog at lornajane.net, and you can follow her on Twitter at lornajane. Lorna is the author of the LeanPub books, Zen Certification Preparation Pack, and Ways to Be a Better Developer, which she co-authored with uh, Evo Yanch, and Git Workbook, A Self-Study Guide to Git. In this interview, we're going to talk about Lorna's background and career, uh, professional interests, um, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about her experience uh, using LeanPub to be a self-published author and maybe her experience as a conventionally published author and writer as well. So thank you, Lorna, for being on the LeanPub Front Matter podcast. It's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Um, I usually like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, where you grew up and how you first became interested in computers and software. Oh, sure. So I'm from a city in the in the middle of England called Birmingham, um, which is mostly mostly famous for um, the accent that the people from there have, except. I've lived in other places so long that you can't hear it unless I've had a couple of beers. Um, <laughs> at school, I guess, I was really interested in math and science, but I went to an all-girls school and I didn't have a lot of technical role models. At university, I went to study engineering without really knowing what that was, which was just super lucky. Um, I went to university in a great little town in the north of England here called York, it's a great town, it's a great university, and I got a great engineering degree and learned to ask the hard questions and then go and ask for the instructions to solve the problem. Um, I guess I hadn't, I'm unusual, I think, in computing terms. I didn't know that you could write code and get paid for it till I was about 21. Um, my degree is I actually have a master's in electronic engineering. Um, so... In that sense, I came to it late, and in another sense, not really. Like, I, I didn't change career. I've always done software. My first job out of university was writing games, and I've worked in a bunch of different technologies. I've been employed by small companies. I'm now at IBM, which is a really big company. I've run my own business in between. It was a really small company. So it's been a really nice mix of different technologies and just loads of different things because software Everybody uses it. Every industry uses it. So I've worked in everything from games to manufacturing to personnel software. It just constantly keeps me entertained. So how did you move from uh, electrical engineering into writing games? I just applied for a bunch of jobs and a games company were like, yeah, we'll, we'll have her. I was, when I was at university, I was writing websites like for the university societies as a hobby. I did a little bit of coding experience. And just from the engineering degree with games, I think a lot of people don't necessarily know that it has a really big math component. You have to be able to do like angles of collisions and lots of vector calculations and stuff. And I had the mathematical background as well. Uh, and I was also quite a keen gamer even then. Um, and as I understand it from, uh, I think, a passage in one of your books, um, it might have been on a blog post, you you at one point early on and relatively early on in your career, you were hired for a position that you, you felt you probably weren't quite ready for. Um, you ended up <laughs> thriving, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that, that experience was like, you know, re realizing that and, and diving in anyway. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those things that I think 
you know, m maybe I could have been more cautious about it. Um, but I was working in a little web agency and I was really unhappy and turned out so were they because they fired me. Um, I've only been fired once and it was the same week that I became a Zen certified engineer for the first time. So um, it was it was a weird time. So I, I really needed a job. And so somebody I met on the Internet interviewed me for a job. And his name is Ivo Yansh. You just mentioned him in the introduction. He's my co-author on one of these books. And he was CTO of an awesome PHP company called iBuilding. And, you know, he said, oh, I think she would grow into it and, you know, offered me the job. And I was really proud of myself. And I just struggled so much in that job to keep up, to kind of level up fast enough to not get fired. I actually didn't get fired from that role. But when I left, he said to me that he had known right at the start that I didn't already have the skills that I needed, but he thought I'd be fun to work with. I could have happily hit him. You could have happily what, sorry? Hit him. <laughs> that <laughs> was just such a said. tough, I, yeah, it was just such a, you know, a tough, a tough job. But looking back, I learned so much because I was really given that chance to, to level up. And you, you sink or swim. And I was working with some excellent people, some of them I'm still in touch with. So it turned out a really good experience. But yeah, tough, definitely. And um, if I'm not mistaken, was it, was it after that that you made a move towards being an independent consultant? At a certain yes, point? it was. Okay. Yeah. What, so what, it what was straight. That, what drove that decision? I mean, I, I always love asking people that question because quite a few Lean Pub authors make a decision like that at some point in their lives? Well, and the two probably go together because now I'm employed full-time again. I'm wondering how you write a book when you've got a full-time job. Um, yeah, I was doing some really interesting stuff at iBuildings. I was doing some of their training stuff. I was doing some of their community um, activities as well. I was also beginning to speak as a conference speaker. Um, and I just felt that it's quite difficult to look for a job when you're well-known in your industry because like, it's a really small industry and, and people know that you're looking. And I was working for a company that was really at the center of everything. So I kind of quit my job because I knew I didn't want to do that job anymore. But I didn't really have a plan or any client or anything <laughs> like that. But a local company asked me to deliver some training for them. And then I did a bit of consultancy for some people that I met at a conference. And it really just, I really just ran and ran. I mean, I was, that freelance business kept me solvent for six years. So. And then, and then you decided to go, go back to working for a big company. Uh, what was that yeah. experience like? I mean, I, I think, I think you, I think you mostly work from home when you're not traveling and speaking, uh, but that must've been quite the transition. It, it, it really was. I, I've worked for all sorts of different organizations. You know, I, I didn't hold down jobs for very long, really, in the early part of my career because I'm hard to keep entertained at work. So going from being, well, I was, I was freelance. And then right at the end of being freelance, I was like part-time freelance and part-time tech lead for a really small web agency. Um, so IBM, <laughs> which is like hundreds of thousands of people worldwide, with all sorts of corporate like process and rules and all sorts is a huge culture shock. And I've been there 18 months. I think I'm still finding my way around for some things like 
but I've really started to build my network and met some really excellent people there. And that, that kind of helps because some people at IBM have been there a long time. Um, and they've usually, you sort of think, oh, how do you keep a job for 20 years? No, no, they've done 20 jobs. So they, they've done lots of different stuff and they know lots of different areas of the business. So you can always find a spirit guide. Um, just framing my next question, uh, just yesterday I published uh, <laughs> an interview for this podcast with Jerry Weinberg, um, whom you may have heard of. Um, he's written books about software testing and things like that, and he, he had a very interesting career. He, uh, he started at IBM um, kind of in the before time, uh, before they were into computers, or right around the time when they were getting into computers. And he had a really interesting anecdote about how the executives did not want to get into the programming business. Um, and they tried at a certain moment in time to sort of standardize programs and make them so they kind of wrote them once, one way, and that was it. Uh, obviously, that's changed. Um, and IBM does a, a lot of software. <laughs> Um, and that's one of the reason it ha reasons it has developer advocates. So I know I know you you get asked this all the time, but I was wondering if in that context um, you could talk about what a developer advocate does and how they interact with the people to get the software completed. Yeah, I think developer advocacy is the job has kind of two directions. There's the one people see where I leave the building and um, go to a conference or, or I'm doing some written content, just helping developers to understand and learn about and use our tools. For IBM Cloud, that's super easy because most of it's open source. And so the tools are familiar to most developers. They may not realize that IBM are running them, um, but it, it's an area that, you know, I'm from a really open source background. Um, so I'm often seen out and about spreading the good word. And I think that's what advocates are known for. The other half of the job is much less visible, and that's where I come back from a conference um, or I return from Twitter uh, message uh, chaos and kind of try and explain, instead of explaining the IBM stuff to developers, explain the developer stuff to IBM. So that can be about lobbying to get changes, to improve interoperability with other systems, Sometimes it's as simple as fixing the documentation, and I can do that myself. Sometimes I'm actually fixing the tool or at least reporting bugs. So it's kind of, it's kind of two halves, just helping a big company to interface with a big community by means of very many small, uh, small little small actions that hopefully add up to a big difference. Yeah, you wrote you wrote a blog post um, about how last year I think about how the least visible part of your role is your is your technical role. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk just a little bit about, about what that's like. I mean, you, you mentioned, I think, fixing bugs. Yeah, it's really interesting because you see uh, developer advocates, evangelists, dev developer relations people, we're giving talks, and it looks quite non-technical. There are slide decks, and we're, we've got people skills. Um, and it can, we can look like something from marketing, <clears throat> and some developer relations roles even report up through marketing. I don't. We're thoroughly in engineering. Um, but what you don't see is that when I can't use an open source component on our platform, I'm going to patch the open source component. So I have to be able to code in a variety of different stacks, and I have to be able to 
um, work GitHub and interact with those project maintainers. You know, I open source experience um, to, to get in and get that code in uh, and, and help get that problem fixed across a bunch of different projects. So it's, I'm always working on different projects, always working on different stacks. You have to be able to pick up completely unfamiliar code and, and make a difference with it. Um, so it's actually very technical, but that is much quieter than when you see me on a big keynote stage or there's a video of me or something. Um, you had one interesting, uh, I guess I would call it technical post on your blog that I wanted to ask you about, about having an echo dot in your office um, and what it's like to build conversations with Alexa. And I, I'm curious, partly because I suffer from a bit of, in spite of myself, skepticism about voice controlled speakers and virtual assistants. And I just wanted to ask you, how do you find yourself using, using Alexa in your office? Well, she's muted when I'm recording podcasts <laughs> so that she doesn't, <laughs> so that she doesn't suddenly answer back. Um, yeah. So I use Alexa. She controls a bunch of the smart home stuff. So she can turn lights on and off and plugs on and off and stuff like that, which can be quite useful if you've got your hands full. Um, I ask her about the weather, where I am and also where I'm going. I, where I live in Northern England, we've, I'm in the middle of a big set of hills called the Pennines and the weather can vary enormously with half an hour's train journey. So um, I chat to her about that. She can tell me about the news. Uh, I can ask her to play me some music. So I do chat to her and she can also do like, you can ask her how she is and where she is. And, you know, if you're lonely, she talks back. I work from home. Uh, actually, that I'm going to jump ahead there. I you um you had a I think I think it was a blog post where you talk about your um stuffed animal toys that you talk to. Um, and I've I've heard a lot of you know how to work from home. Uh, come across a lot of advice and techniques about that in the past, but that that was a new one to me. Oh yes, cuddly eel. Well, when you're delivering a webinar, you know you're you're chatting, but you're you're basically talking to yourself. And it can be quite artificial. So when I'm rehearsing a talk or delivering a webinar, then I get my small cuddly Eeyore and put him where I can see him on the desk and I explain it to him in, with great attention and detail. And I think it just helps to, um, to kind of address your remarks to something that isn't like the ceiling or something. It really sort of directs your attention. Yeah, that sounds that that it, I mean, it was I, I found it compelling as soon as I read it. It was just original uh, to me and really, really it sounds really fun um, and useful. Um, one one question I want to ask you, you mentioned uh, living in the north of England. Um, I used to live in the UK, so I just I'm, I've been like other people who haven't. I've, I've but with perhaps a little special connection, I've been watching things happening ever since um, uh you know, even the Brexit referendum was announced or debated. Um, and I was wondering if someone working in the kind of tech sector, uh, is this, is, are people in the tech sector in the UK concerned about the effects of Brexit or is it something that, generally speaking, or is it something that people think the tech sector won't be that affected by directly? I think we're all pretty horrified and nervous about it. I mean, of course, tech should be inclusive and it should include people with all sorts of different political views um, and points of view. But for the most part, people who work in tech are well-educated, well-traveled. Um, I don't think any of us really thought Brexit would be a thing. Certainly I didn't. Um, I've known a few people already move to Europe 
um, apply for other citizenship if they're eligible, if they're businesses to Europe. We don't know really what the economic impact is going to be, but it's not going to be good here. So I won't say people are leaving in droves, but I would say that there is some anxiety and certainly nobody, um, <clears throat> or not nobody, but there are, there are certainly fewer events, I think, coming to the UK. If you were thinking of running an event in Europe, a lot of those are going to be in mainland Europe, perhaps not this year, but certainly next year, just, uh, because it will still be um, a, a more sane place to travel to, whereas for the UK, we're not sure. Oh, that's really interesting. I hadn't, I just hadn't thought about the impact on, on things like conferences, but that, um, that makes a lot of sense. Um, moving on, one, one thing I didn't know about you until I was uh, sort of deep into researching for this interview was that um, you've developed video courses with O'Reilly. Um, and I've interviewed people who've done videos for Pluralsight, uh, but I don't think I've ever had the chance to talk, who, talk to someone who had their, their experience doing that with O'Reilly, and I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. Did, did they approach you? Yeah, so I had already done some other video content for SitePoint, and I was first published by SitePoint as a traditional author. Um, and then I pitched the book to O'Reilly because I was the speaker at Oscon. Um, and then once I became an author with them, then I kind of built up that relationship and they asked me to do, first I did some video with them, which was, I flew out to their offices and we did it in person with me on camera, um, and all the kind of sound setup and everything. So we did one course like that, or, or maybe two courses like that, actually. And then we also did, um, I've done some screencasting for them since, which was just more home-based. You know, they sent me a load of audio equipment and we did it with screencast and just audio. And then they did all the editing for me. Um, it was a great experience because they do all the editing. And as a disabled user, I can't video edit. So I can't publish on Pluralsight without outsourcing the video edit work. And that's quite a big upfront cost. So um, for me, and I already had that relationship with O'Reilly as a content provider, as a, as a written author, then uh, it was perfect. Um, speaking about your your uh, experience as a sort of conventionally or traditionally published author, you did you did eventually decide to also produce some content on LeanPub, and I wanted to ask you a little bit, bit, bit about what the what led you to sell the self publishing world, or was it just yeah, I'm trying... extension from blogging and and things like that. <laughs> One of my books, I was trying to write a handout, and I got carried away, and now it's a book. <laughs> So, <laughs> oops. Um, the thing about self-publishing is you don't need anyone's permission. No one needs to sign off a contract. It doesn't take a year. You know, if you have something to share, you can throw it out there. And I definitely missed my editors. Um, but I felt it, it, because it's such a short cycle, you know, if I had a gap um, in my freelance work, then I could just push something and it was done. It wasn't like, once you're completely snowed under with four simultaneous contracts and a bunch of conferences, they'll come back and need edits tomorrow. Like, I was more in control of my workload. Um, so I enjoyed both routes and, and being like a, a dead tree author, if you like, uh, particularly for O'Reilly, who is so widely recognized in the tech sector, has been great. And I still see them at conferences and we still do stuff and it's brilliant. And I, and I wouldn't undo that. But the books that I published on 
lean pub, I'm not sure a traditional publisher would have taken. Like they're an unusual, they're all unusual formats. One of them's co-authored. You know, they're just a bit outside of the norm. And this way it enabled me to share it and, you know, get a bit of money in from it as well um, and just put it out there really whenever I wanted to and quite quickly. And I'm still pushing updates to those books. So, um, yeah, I, I really love the Lean Pub platform and it's not that I would do it one way or, or another. Um, they've both had benefits, but just letting me put my content out when I wanted, it was brilliant. Yeah, it's interesting um, uh, that, you know, the, the control over process uh, is something that we've heard from a lot of uh, authors who um, benefited greatly and very much enjoyed the uh, traditional publishing process, but also through that experience, maybe felt a little bit more empowered to do things on their own. Um, uh, in one of your books, uh, you, you mentioned you co-authored a book, uh, N Ways to Be a Better Developer. Um, you write about how it's important for developers' own self-interest that they learn to uh, speak manager. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that idea and, and why it's so important. Okay, so this comes straight back to a story that I just told you about a guy who hired me when he knew I couldn't really do the job. Um, he insisted that I learn to speak manager because we just found that even though he felt I was coming up with good ideas or sensible approaches for client work, I wasn't always being heard. And it's because I was, as a developer, kind of focused on the ethics or the technology. And managers need to hear, like, revenue and delivery and strong words like that. So, he, yeah, revenue, every third word, do it. Yeah, that was that was a, a, a funny and I thought very realistic advice to throw the word revenue in uh, as much as you can when you're talking yeah. to, when you're talking to managers because you're tying it back to uh, something that can be measured um, and and something that's in everyone's interest to uh, talk about. Yeah, exactly, and and I think it's something that's important. You know, at iBuildings, particularly in the UK, it was a small company when I worked there. It's a really big company now. Um, when I went there with a small company, we all had to be close to the business process. And if none of us are going to get paid, then no matter how good your technology is, it's not the right thing. So we need to frame it in business terms and also speak about it that way. And that was something that I struggled with early in my development career. Um, you also wrote an interesting uh, piece in there about transferable skills being transferable, if you can, if you can recall. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, because I think, you know, deciding should I should I buy that new book and, and take the time to read it about that new piece of technology? Or should I, you know, uh, go down a path that doesn't seem directly related to the work that I'm doing now or expect to be doing in the future? How, how can people make those decisions? Transferable skills are really interesting because a lot of the time I don't think we realize how much we already know that we can take with us. So I think particularly in tech, we get to know one language or one framework really well. Um, and then the reality is if you've, if you've got experience with, let's say, microservices and a queuing system, like the hard part isn't the programming language. So if you're asked, if your experience is with Sinatra and you're asked to write it in uh, Slim or Flask, then you already have most of the skills. You know how this should look. If you've only worked with Beanstalk C, but the new client uses RabbitN, right, you've got queuing concepts. That's transferable. So you can't, 
I think we can be a bit um, anxious about it and, and say, oh, I don't know that. I haven't done that. But actually, particularly as you gain some flying hours as a developer and pick up more than one language or more than one framework, then a bit like learning foreign languages, once you get to like four or five, it, it, you, your brain has those pathways. And I think it's really important for people to get to know, you know, a couple of different sorts of databases. Um, one of my books is about Git. That's the world's most transferable skill. You're going to use that on every software project you do. Um, and just trying to be open-minded about learning something that might not be obviously on the way to where you want to go, because it'll probably help you at some point. And um, if, if let's say you're an employee at a company and you're talking to a manager about uh, them paying for you to go to a conference where you're going to learn a new skill, um, how would you speak manager to them? Yeah, it's, that's a really that's a really tricky one. And I will confess that certainly early in my career, I just took the time off and self-funded and no one knew where I was. Um, I think it's really important that managers should support all sorts of education. So I really like people to negotiate for training budgets in the first place and then they don't have to have on a sort of per conference basis. I think it's really about making managers understand that we go to conferences to share ideas, to improve the quality of what we do, to make sure that we're using the most modern tools and being as effective as we can do. And I think that sort of effective, efficient, um, modern can can kind of talk to a manager and help them to understand that even just this, the small cost of a, a ticket and releasing the team for the day can deliver some some real big savings in the longer term. Um, you mentioned that you've been updating your uh, LeanPub books, um, and uh, that uh, leads me to ask you if interacting with your readers has been an important part of your process. Have you been soliciting feedback or just receiving unsolicited feedback and then changing your books based on that? Certainly when they were first launched, I think I had a lot more interaction. Um, the End Ways to Be a Better Developer book was a talk originally, so a bunch of people saw it and then bought the book for their team and then tweeted at us and stuff. I mean, it's been out for a while, so um, we certainly haven't given the talk all that lately. Um but I still get some email questions about it. Um, the Git workbook, I get email about that all the time. Um, and I think the page does say, like, just fill in the concept form and email me. And people do. People tweet at me about it. And I also mentioned it in a video. There's a talk video from a conference in Amsterdam, Laracon, a few years ago. Where I did basically Git demo and then mentioned the book. So the two kind of feed off each other. It's quite... Uh, certainly by my standards, quite highly watched on YouTube. And then the book is mentioned. So people come in by either route and then watch the other one. So, you know, I, I do sometimes get um, email and questions. So the updates are usually not so much errata because it's been out for a while and I've fixed it a bunch of times, but also like people asking questions that make me think, hmm, now I've explained this, to, I've answered your question. I could put a better explanation into the book. So tend to go back and update stuff. And people tweet random Git questions at me as well. <laughs> they usually become, then they become book chapters because I think, yeah, I should write that down. Um, the last question I always ask in this podcast is, is if there were one thing on LeanPub that we could build for you or one thing that we could fix for you, uh, 
what would you ask us to do if you can if you can think of anything? I've been using LeanPub quite a long time. Um, I have had many long and interesting email threads with your support team um, over the years. It looks like 2013 was my start date as the, the oldest emails that I'm coming up with in my inbox for, uh, for working with LeanPub. So, in fact, you have already fixed a bunch of stuff, um, mainly around the tooling, the markdown, uh, the GitHub integration, which wasn't there when I first started, um, and those kinds of things. I think the tooling has improved immensely. So now, yeah, I mean, I've pushed the updates to the Git book from I've been on holiday in Peru, um, and I just took my tablet, Bluetooth keyboard. You know, it's, I have an editor that can do Markdown. I push the GitHub, uh, and I can do everything from there. I just wanted to make some. I already had the words that I wanted to add and a few minor amends. And because the tooling is so good, I can generate the preview, check check PDF. Um, you know, I, I kind of have what I kind of have what I need, and I suspect my next book might go on LeanPub as well. Well, if uh, you do come across anything that we should fix or anything that you can think of, uh, we, I mean, well, we'll be very receptive because we, we thank you for your in, input in the past. Uh, one of the things that has always been very important to us is to work closely with the authors uh, using LeanPub, who are often, not surprisingly, since they're writing books, uh, independent and driven people, um, and with uh, which is a, another way of saying highly opinionated. Um, and uh, we love that. Um, and uh, yeah, it's one of the reasons that that lean pub uh, does work better than it used to in the past. I don't want to don't want to boast. Um, but uh, anyway, thank you um, very much for that for that feedback, uh, and your feedback over the years. And thank you, Lorna, for taking the time to do this podcast and for being a lean pub author. Oh, thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks.